This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Free FM 89.0. Now we present Big Things Ahead, a Free FM series in which Paul Barlow tackles the big things facing Kirikiriroa Hamilton. The Three Waters Reforms, Representation, Growth, Infrastructure, Iwi and Youth Participation and Decision Making, and Climate Change. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and search for Big Things Ahead. Welcome to Big Things Ahead, a new series here on Free FM with me, Paul Barlow, where we look at some of the big issues facing Kirikiriroa Hamilton that are going to change the shape of the city as it goes forward into the future. In this episode, we're looking at climate action, a massive issue that will affect literally everybody on the planet at some stage, and how Kirikiriroa is stepping up to try and change things, help things out, and how it's setting itself up for a future where the world is very different to what it is today. So let's start with the basics. Climate change is what happens through action and inaction of humans over the last 150 to 200 odd years. So we kind of have to look at it on both a global scale, where you'll see things like ice caps melting, glaciers disappearing, and sea levels rising. But at the same time, you'll see more extreme weather conditions. And when it comes to the Waikato, it's very much the same. It's a microcosmos of what's happening on a global scale. But the Waikato also has its own particular issues, and Hamilton and the Waikato are two very different beasts when it comes to climate change. For the region as a whole, the largest polluter is very much the dairy industry. Nationwide, gas emissions from the dairy industry make up about 48% of the total gas emissions nationwide. 71% of that comes from the agriculture industry, particularly around beef and dairy farming. And the reason for that is because cows create methane, which is a lot harder to deal with to get rid of than carbon. Carbon can be offset by things like tree planting because photosynthesis means bad air goes in, good air goes out. But methane's very different in that respect. About half of that comes from cows belching. When it comes to Hamilton City, though, the largest producer of emissions is actually transport, which is one of the reasons why transport is such a big issue. According to Sarah Thompson, who's on the Infrastructure and Transport Committees at Hamilton City Council, there's a really strong reason to try and move forward with some of the changes that they want to put in place around creating less emissions through transport. In our long-term plan, we've committed to uh, the school link project, which um, is a walking and cycling and bus project, which will connect about 20 schools and thousands of households uh, safely to school as well as work and other opportunities. Uh, we've also uh, started work on our biking and micromobility plan, which does have funding in our long-term plan, but unfortunately, um, despite declaring a climate emergency, the government hasn't come to the table with any co-funding for it yet. Uh, and that will, when we get the money, uh, end up um, with, have us ending up with a connected biking and scootering and skateboarding network across the city. Right now it's planned to take 30 years to complete, but my hope is that we can actually 
uh, start with a transitional network using more temporary stuff like cycle ones and paint and um, reducing traffic on roads with low traffic neighbourhoods uh, to get that network connected and then more gradually upgrade it uh, with your gold-plated kind of infrastructure. Because transport is such a large creator of emissions, not only is it really important to tackle that when it comes to climate control, the way that transport is planned and is going to be executed in the future is a really complicated, complex issue, which is one of the reasons why one of our next episodes is actually on transport changes that are coming to the city. Because not only is it going to change the way that the city deals with the emissions it creates, it's going to change the way the city itself is designed and builds and grows. So we've put a whole episode aside for that one. There's also other factors that come into play around how we react to climate change and what as a city can be done to mitigate some of those effects. And some of it's really big and complicated, like carbon emission buybacks, which is basically somebody plants a tree for every little bit of carbon that gets put out there. But the region's largest polluter, in fact, the country's largest polluter, doesn't fall under that category because that only works for carbon. Methane doesn't work as a buyback, and the largest polluter in the country is Fonterra, the largest company in the country based in Hamilton. So you automatically have us at a bit of a disadvantage in that we have a methane-producing industry based within the city that incorporates the entire region that you can't really do much about. Up until recently, that was. So the two main causes of methane on a farm are essentially cow burps and sitting ponds. That they've recently discovered ways of being able to fix, and it really is just a case of mixing an iron sulfide to your methane mix. It cuts down on bacteria, it mitigates about 99.9% of the methane emissions. It's a really large chunk of of stepping in the right direction, to be honest. Um, And when I say it's fairly recent, it was only announced on the at the beginning of November from Lincoln University that they'd come across this particular process to make this happen. So that's still a few steps away. The government also has a really big hand in trying to encourage councils to work out ways to reduce the amount of waste that everybody creates in their own homes. While central government has funds available for green initiatives and for climate change specifically, that may or may not have come through to different councils and obviously hasn't hit where it needs to yet within Kirikiriroa, there are other things that the government is in charge of that will help make councils' decisions easier on changing how they deal with waste. One of those is a trash levy. So the government charges at the moment $10 for every cubic tonne of landfill waste. And that's actually pretty out of date. It hasn't been updated in a while and it doesn't reflect the true cost of what it takes to actually get rid of your rubbish, which was one of the reasons why Hamilton City Council chose last year to change out how the rubbish system works, because by the end of 2024, that levy is going to jump to $60 per tonne, and that's a huge amount of change. That that goes from about a million and a half dollars to seven and a half million dollars over four years. That's a huge cost. So councils are encouraged to try and pull back on creating landfill waste within residential areas. But when you've got 53 to 63,000 homes creating 2.3 tons of rubbish each, that's a big ask. I spoke to Hamilton Mayor Paula Southgate about this because it's quite surprising the issues that have cropped up around the new waste management system, but also just how successful it's been. Actually, it's going very well. We've well exceeded 
the tonnage of food waste diverted, taken, not going to landfill, diverted from landfill, going into compost. That compost, of course, comes back. We call it trompost. It comes back and it um, goes into our gardens. It goes into our community gardens um, so they can grow vegetables and things like that. So that is really good. 50, last not last I heard, and I haven't asked this question in, um, in the last couple of months, we were around about 52% of Hamiltonians embraced the food recycling um, scheme. So we've still got a way to go. At the moment, with the good news is the food waste is helping to offset those charges, the increased charges. So we're pretty cost neutral as far as increased charges are going. So um, that's saving the ratepayers tangible money. The thing is we'd rather um, that we help the community embrace new ways of dealing with waste than to be too heavy-handed about it because then people start breaking the rules. And you hear of stories of... Um, you know, I went to bring my rubbish bin and I found it full again. Somebody's been and put their, <laughs> their rubbish in it because people are looking for um, ways to deal with their waste. We are trying to iron out the wrinkles. I know there's still some anger about it. We are trying to uh, iron out some wrinkles, things like medical waste, bulky waste like nappies and so on, extra large families who live communally and so on. We are trying to work through those issues. In fact, at a recent infrastructure committee meeting, one of the things that popped up when they were looking at reports on the waste management system within the city that, to be honest, I'd never really considered is that one of the largest sorts of waste that's really hard to find a way to sort because it's technically organic but it's stored in an inorganic compartment is nappies. Now, nappies, you might think quite rightly, you know, it's something that families with little kids deal with. It becomes a bit of an issue. Throwaway nappies are pretty easy to use, but at the same time, it's an issue for a lot of people as well suffering from mental disabilities or older people who are suffering from incontinence problems. And it's not really an issue that gets spoken about a lot, but nappy waste is a surprisingly large one that our waste management system is not set up to deal with. And that actually kind of blew me for six. I was not expecting that at all. Here's what Councillor Sarah Thompson had to say about that. There's some cool ideas out there. Um, uh, I understand we're working on uh, nappies. So nappies are a big problem. Um, and with parents being really busy, it's understandable that, you know, they look at cloth nappies sometimes and go, I can't even think about it. Um, uh, but we're looking at helping day, uh, daycares with, um, I think there's someone trying to set up a service to uh, wash reusable nappies. And so, you know, you can send your kids to daycare and they can use reusable nappies and then they're washed and then brought back, which makes life you know, much easier for everyone. So um, that's uh, we haven't had anything come back to us, um, I guess, formally yet, but I understand that work's happening, which is pretty cool. So essentially the whole new rubbish method of getting rid of home waste seems to have been a pretty big success even though there were a few initial issues, and there are always going to be a few ongoing issues as well. But when I was talking to Councillor Mark Bunting, he pointed out to me that there's essentially two routes that a city council can go down to do work towards mitigating or working with climate change. So there's, there's two angles to it. One is the, the regulations you can put around um, the city. So there's obviously the nature in the city plan and stuff you can actually control. Like you can plant more trees. You can uh, do all that sort of stuff without having to impinge on people's rights. Um, then, or, you know, or current rights, as it were. Then we've did the waste and recycling um, change. 
um, which is massive, and there's so much less going into landfill now, which is great. And the other angle, you know, apart from all those positive things you can do, is you can uh, look at what council itself is doing with its own practices. So what exactly has Hamilton City Council done to lead from the front when it comes to fighting climate change? What are some of the operational changes that have happened within the organisation, but also the goals of those organisations and how they're fed out as different projects that are fighting climate change that aren't going to affect very much in your day-to-day life short term, but in the long term provide some sort of benefit in in terms of climate change and in terms of the quality of life that you have living in the city. Uh, The other thing, of course, is our green spaces. We're we're particularly lucky in Hamilton. We've got a fabulous uh, gully network. It runs right through the city. It's beautiful, but... Not all of those gullies are in good shape. Uh, some of them are weedy. Some of them have been well-loved by largely voluntary groups, actually. All credit to them for going out in their weekends and, and restoring uh, gullies. And too many to name, but lots of really, really good groups out there doing that. So we're giving them a hand up and saying, well, you know, those green spaces should be restored. There should be more trees planted, should be more natives. Um, as far as I can see... Um, we've made a couple of plans and we're getting rid of our utes. So I see that slightly glibly, but it is the, you know, one of the big takeouts that, you know, they've got these big diesel pumping utes sitting in their car parks that they, you know, take out for, for the likes of building inspections and stuff. And they're saying, well, we don't need those. Um, so, you know, we're looking to eventually, hopefully electrify more of our fleet. Bike racks are at the moment for council, the official ones. We have got a couple of e-bikes. Uh, they're under, in the underground car park. As Councillor Dave McPherson points out there, even though they've got the facilities there for e-bikes at the Hamilton City Council building in the CBD, it's not in the best place for it. It's certainly not in the most common sense place for it when you're trying to encourage more people to use these particular tools. The Waikato Regional Council has recently had a major building shift and upgrade, which includes a lot more of these facilities for electric bikes, cars, scooters, any type of alternative carbon-free mode of transport, which is fantastic to see. And Paula, before talking about the gully network that's going on around the city, the gullies are one of the natural resources that Hamilton has that are absolutely fantastic. And some, as you mentioned, have been looked after really well, some not so much. But they're so important to the ecosystem of the region that they need to be brought up to speed really, really fast. The late Councillor Margaret Forsyth, who was up until her passing in charge of the Environment Committee, was really keen to see that kind of rebuild happen. And she oversaw over 10,000 plantings of trees around the city in green spaces and in the rebuild of those gully areas. But one of the things that people don't often realise when it comes to just how fragile the ecosystem is, Fairfield is actually the home of one of three species of whitebait in the country. So they get spawned there, they swim out to the sea, and that's where people catch them. Nobody knows where the other ones spawn or where they come from. But Donnie Park in Fairfield is the only known natural environment for New Zealand whitebait. And if that sort of environment isn't looked after and isn't maintained, that's a natural resource that we look at losing. That is a delicious type of fritter that we end up losing and not having at all. But more importantly, it's the loss of wildlife within the region, within the city, that is completely irreplaceable. And that's really what the dangers of climate change are, because they can be drastic and they can be long term. Between now and the year 2090, if nothing is done to mitigate climate change, it's predicted that the temperatures within the Waikato region are going to increase 3.1 degrees. 
your droughts are going to be longer, your water is going to be harder to come by, your weather patterns are going to be more extreme, and it's going to be a lot harder to deal with the outcomes. Extreme weather patterns are what lead to things like tornadoes and droughts and floods. It is a huge knock-on effect by not getting this right. And as the mayor points out, we've almost left it a little bit too late. Because we can't do everything. We can't do everything. And if you've been listening to the international debate just lately, it's huge and we're never going to be able to solve it on our own. So how within the business that we do as a council do we make a difference? One of the key ways the council has done that is by helping out community groups along the way whose process or aim is to try and come up with climate change mitigating outcomes or improving the quality of life within the city, like Go Eco. I sat down with Go Eco chairperson Joe Wrigley and we had a bit of a chat about how much help that council has been and what some of the outcomes have been from that. Hamilton City Council has been able to um, increase some of the support um, you know, uh, through through a, a small amount of funding, which has been an acknowledgement of unpaid work over decades, but has also meant that there's um, engagement has been boosted. So we're great. We've got more ability to see the massive gaping holes in the system now, because that brought us together to do that. I think the really obvious issues uh, tend to do with uh, cycling, with biodiversity, um, with uh, the rate of uh, development, with our, our water systems, um, and all of these things contribute or, or, or are parts of climate action. The beauty, the beauty, if there is a beauty to be found in COVID, COVID has highlighted many things. Uh, through those lockdowns, people became aware of their surroundings. They started using the footpaths that they perhaps didn't use like often um, to realise that actually that's a really awkward place to push a stroller or walk a toddler or have a small child on a bike or, or a person with a, with a walking stick even. Um, and uh, either through the holes or the cracks or, you, you know, or the footpath that ran out before you got to where you needed to be and you're trying to solve the mystery of how, you know, where to now. The biodiversity stuff that Joe's talking about there is really important because biodiversity is a key indicator as to how well everybody is doing, essentially. It's like a canary in a mine. Although when it comes to biodiversity in Kirikirira Hamilton, it's more like a peka peka in a cave in that it's more about bats and fish and bird life. There's some unique flora and fauna there. And the whole region really requires these things to thrive to show that the region itself is thriving. And there was a lot of work done over the last 20 years or so to bring back a whole bunch of native species into the region that you might not even have been aware of. One of the most positive things I think from that biodiversity perspective is the last, you know, the Hamilton, um, the long-term plan and the annual plan and the commitment of of money to biodiversity in the city. Um, because for a long time that hasn't been, a, a, well, while there's been some commitment, it's not been a commitment that's been overly budgeted for. So Kirikiriro is actually in a really unique position where there's a whole bunch of gaps that have been highlighted due to increased funding going towards climate change actions and environmental regional changes as well. 
it's a really cool thing to see. And there was another element as well, which I personally hadn't really picked up on, that Joe pointed out to me about the change to the electoral system and how that actually has a part to play in this as well. I guess one of the things that um, most people wouldn't think of but has been a good progress step has been um, the inclusion of Māori wards and the Paumanawa document. So setting in place that real guidance for council around te tiriti or waitangi and working with Māori. Um, we think that that's really important and um and it saddens us and, and many other people in the city that we still have, or we still give voice to um, people or representatives who would dispute the right of tangata whenua to be kaitiaki of their whenua. So overall, between the council itself, the regional council, and people working within the climate change field trying to get people more enthused and working towards better solutions, they actually feel the city is doing relatively well on that front. But there's two things that really have sort of cropped up as issues around the whole thing. The first is speed. When it comes to getting things done, governments, local and national, work at a glacial pace, and that can cause some real problems. The first thing you need is a strategy and a policy. So it takes four years. What we're learning from this is that for robust policy at council, it takes four years to develop it. So it's one and a bit election cycles. The second thing that sort of complicates things a little bit between your community workers and your councils or government of any sort is that the two tend to work on different value systems. Community groups tend to work on a value-based system, what's the best for the people that they're working with or the region that they're working in or the environment that they're working to fix. Whereas councils, by their very nature, tend to be more binary and tend to be more this follows that follows this because that's the rules that we've got to follow and these are the outcomes that we expect to get. This is how Mark Bunting put it to me. <laughs> They'll put in a a very expensive document to us, and then the regulations will change nine times out of ten. So getting past the binary nature of how councils work compared to value-based organisations in the community, getting past the fact that government can take a long time to get anything done, it really does raise a question then of if everybody's really kind of okay with how things are going, or it could be worse and we're in an okay position, is enough being done to mitigate the effects of climate change. Not forgetting, not that long ago, we had world leaders arguing over whether or not we limit the increase of climate change from 1.5 to 1.8 degrees because the results would be catastrophic either way. So is this council doing enough to mitigate the effects of climate change to ensure that we've got a future going forward? Um, well, no, look, I would accept that we're not making... Um progress half half as quickly enough you just we were a very young city right with um, a large portion of our people under the age of 35 they've made it quite clear what they want for the future they want a carbon friendly future um and we've been playing around the edges as the rest of the world has but i don't think we can get away with that for long so essentially, everybody agrees, climate change is a thing that we have to deal with, and we're probably not doing enough to deal with it as it is. Seven of the last eight years have recorded the highest average temperature ever recorded by NIWA for that entire year. 
Last year, we saw the highest ever temperature recorded within Aotearoa, a 38-degree temperature in Gisborne. We're seeing, on average, 1.7 millimetres worth of ocean rise every year for the last 100 years. We're seeing longer droughts. We're seeing drier winters. And this winter just been, winter of 2021, is the warmest winter on record ever. We're seeing some drastic changes due to climate change. And it's really quite simple that we no longer have a chance to turn this around and to fix this. What we need to do is adapt. And humans are fantastic at adaptation. But it's not something that comes easily to everybody. And there will be people who fight it tooth and nail. There will be people who don't want to see that these changes are needed. But it's really imperative that that we do them because I want to make sure that my kids and my grandkids have a place where they can be proud to call home and they have a place that they can call home. And that's a really big part as well of this. We need to change what we are doing as a species because we're impacting on absolutely everything that we do. And there's a whole bunch of different factors that come into play there that people don't even realize. Like, you know, increased temperatures within the region, for example, it might feel like a long, warmer summer, but that's when you get your algal blooms in Lake Torpo. That's when you start seeing a decrease in fish stock there. It's when you start seeing more poisons going in the water. Your more humid temperatures tend to allow more invasive species to come in that are going to affect our flora and fauna, so our biodiversity becomes affected. And those sort of warmer, moister places that the Waikato is actually primed for, great breeding ground for malaria. It's not here yet, but that doesn't mean that it can't be. As we've seen with the outbreak of COVID, it's not a difficult thing to believe that these things could spread pretty much anywhere. So it really does boil down to the fact that we're doing stuff. The council is doing stuff. You've got organizations like Go Eco out there doing stuff, trying to inform people on how they can adapt and what they can do to mitigate the effects of climate change. Because while it might seem like it's big and scary, the fact of the matter is we're not going to be able to do anything if we sit here shaking in fear. Now, I asked Joe Wrigley one last question because I figured she's probably a better expert on this than anybody else. What happens if we fail? I think the worst case scenario is that we fail to adapt and we die. Back to be blunt. Yeah. But everything about climate action now is about adaptation. We're already too late to stop the impacts. What we need to be doing is doing everything that we can to reduce the impacts and adapt. So there you have it. The answer is really simple adapt or die. And nobody likes an ultimatum like that. It's just the one that we're faced with at the moment. Council's doing what it can. Community groups are doing what they can. Everybody's been encouraged to do what they can. Because while we seem to be the only species that chooses extinction, others didn't have that choice, we're also the only species that has the ability to be able to adapt overcome and make a better future from this, which is something I would thoroughly recommend that you start looking at doing now if you haven't done so already. Have a chat to Go Eco, have a talk to people around you, do some research and find what's going to work best to help make sure you're doing what you can to mitigate the effects of climate change for you, for those around you and for everybody in the community.
Right, that's me done for this episode. Uh, join me in the next episode where I discuss transport issues um, or download these episodes from freefm.org.nz. There's a whole bunch of interchangeable stuff as well, like, like um, transport options, which is really important, um, or Māori representation, which came out today. So download the episodes, have a listen, get all caught up. Um, and until next time, I will catch you later. Have a great week. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Big Things Ahead is a free FM podcast. Tuya Narao o Tahapori. Thanks for listening to this free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.